0: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. i Richard Atwood. Today we'll talk about the war in Ukraine. What does the year ahead hold? And how seriously should we take signs that Western support for Ukraine is waning? We are normalizing the idea that the
1: aggression can be defeated. And in this warning, we will be absolutely correct. Because every reduction in pressure on the aggressor adds years, adds years to the war. But every investment in the confidence of the defender shortens the war. We must make it possible to answer the most important question. The the war will end
0: with a just and stable peace. That was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking at the World Economic Forum at Davos. Despite his defiant tone, things are looking tougher for Ukraine than they did a year ago. On the battlefield, a big Ukrainian counter-offensive last summer didn't break Russian defences in the way that Kiev and its western backers hoped. With front lines largely static, fighting settled into a war of attrition. Still more worrying for Ukraine are signs that the West is wavering in its support, which has been crucial to Ukraine's war efforts. In the US, aid to Ukraine has become a political football, A package of assistance is stuck in Congress, even though President Joe Biden's administration has wrapped it up with aid to Israel and, as his opponents in the legislature wanted, measures on the US's own border security. Former US President Donald Trump, who now looks likely to face Biden in the US elections in November, criticizes sending aid to Ukraine. This is Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, talking about the package last month.
1: Congress has to decide whether to continue to support the fight for freedom in Ukraine as part of the 50 nation coalition that President Biden has built, or whether Congress will ignore the lessons we've learned from history and let Putin prevail. It is
0: that simple, it is that stark a choice. And this in turn is lower house speaker, Mike Johnson. What the Biden administration seems to be asking for is billions of additional dollars with no appropriate oversight, no clear strategy to win, and and none of the answers that I think the American people are owed. So could the West really give up on Ukraine? What happens if the aid package doesn't get through? And is there any prospect at all for some sort of deal this year between Ukraine and its Western backers and Russian president Vladimir Putin? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back on Olya Olyka, who is Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia director. Olya, welcome back.
1: Happy to be back.
0: So I want to talk in a moment about what's happening on the battlefield politics in ukraine in russia some of the debates in washington and other western capitals about aid to ukraine but we're recording this on what thursday morning and just last night just yesterday it seems that ukraine shot down just across the border in russia a russian military transport plane that apparently was carrying 65 ukrainian prisoners of war what do we know about that
1: Right. So what we know is we got um, reporting started to come in on Wednesday, January 24th of a plane shot down uh, over Russia's uh, Western Belgorod region. So it was a transport aircraft that went down and the Russians immediately said that the plane was carrying Ukrainian POWs. The Ukrainians said that the plane was carrying Russian weapons. They raised questions. But as of now, it's the morning of Thursday, 25 January, it does sound like there were POWs on that aircraft, Ukrainian POWs. So, you know, there's still questions. But the most likely story that's emerging is that, yes, the Ukrainians shot down the plane, and yes, there were POWs on it.
0: And, tell us a little bit about, because what the Russians have said is that these were being transported for some sort of prisoner release deal. This would be the latest of fairly regular prisoner release deals over the past couple of years. Do you wanna just say a little bit about those deals?
1: Sure, the Russians and the Ukrainians have been exchanging prisoners of war off and on since the start of the conflict. The very first exchanges were a big deal and they've continued. These are negotiated directly between Russian and Ukrainian militaries. They're also exchanging remains, right, of people who have been killed that gets less attention. Also, we hear a lot of reports about how Ukrainian POWs are treated in Russian captivity, where the evidence is that they're treated very, very badly. We've certainly heard reports of physical abuse, uh, including sometimes sexual abuse, and then reports of how Russian POWs are treated in Ukraine. Um, Early in the full-scale war, we also heard reports of abuses, but we've not heard anything of that sort um, more recently.
0: So let's move then to the front lines. And as we heard up top, the Ukrainian counteroffensive last summer didn't make the gains people had hoped. But although the front lines are fairly settled, there's still a lot going on, right? Russia probing Ukrainian defences, plus airstrikes and other attacks by both Russia and by Ukraine.
1: Okay, so what we're probably hearing most about is the airstrikes, air attacks on Ukraine as a whole, including civilian areas, and uh, some particularly intense ones uh, have hit Kharkiv um, in Ukraine's east. But we've also seen Russia stepping up its ground attacks in the last few weeks, particularly in the east and south. It has not resulted in them taking back much territory though reports of progress in a few places in Luhansk oblast uh, in Marinka they're also still fighting over Bakhmut and Avdiivka but you know when we talk about uh, the Russians making progress we're talking individual kilometers right and that's in the east not so much in the south where there's also a lot of attacks going on i think the thing to note about this is This is very personnel-intensive fighting. The Russians lose a lot of people for each of these kilometers that they take. And, you know, I think as often happens, they're testing. They're trying to see how far they could get. It's also possible that it's just a a standard operating procedure, right? You keep pushing.
0: And also there have been these Ukrainian strikes on the Russian Black Sea Fleet around Crimea, also in the Sea of Azov, which is to the northeast of Crimea.
1: The Ukrainians were very proud in mid-January to have shot down a Russian A-50U airborne early warning aircraft uh, over the Sea of Azov. The Ukrainian defense ministry said that this was going to delay future Russian attacks because the aircraft was being used for surveillance and that Russia was going to have to rethink its approach to airborne surveillance because, uh, you know, from there on out, it would know its planes were vulnerable. And that's kind of an interesting dynamic over the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, where Ukraine has been able to take back a good bit of initiative. You know, not so much most recently, perhaps, but, you know, if we talk about the disappointments of the overall counteroffensive, what people will counter with is Ukraine's successes in the Black Sea, where it has ended Russia's capacity to effectively blockade them, Uh, In fact, pushed a big chunk of Russia's Black Sea Fleet um, and its command to Sevastopol on Russian soil. They managed to damage a pretty big transport ship in late December, right? Every time something like this happens, it gets a good bit of attention. I think what's interesting here is that if the point of the counteroffensive was to cut Russia off from Crimea, that's not what has happened. But Ukraine has been able to certainly complicate Russian operations from Crimea. And I think what's also really interesting here is that with the collapse of the grain deal last summer.
0: This was the sort of Turkey UN broker deal that uh, got a lot of Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea for some months before Russia then sort of pulled out of it.
1: Right. So without the grain deal, Ukraine has found other ways to continue shipping through the Black Sea, in part because it has broken to a large extent, Russia's military hold on that body of water. It's interesting to understand that dynamic, both because part of that's military, right? Part of that is limiting the ability of the Black Sea Fleet to move about and shoot at things freely. The other part of it is diplomatic. Ukraine had to convince its backers in Bulgaria and Romania other Black Sea littoral states to allow its transport ships to hug their coasts as they move grain. Initially, this was not something that appealed to them because they were fearful that they would draw Russian fire if they did this. But this combination of military success and diplomacy changed the dynamic, and that's exactly what's happening now.
0: And so some months ago, I think sort of as the counteroffensive wound down, Ukraine's top military commander, uh, General Valery Zaluzhny, he described the war as a stalemate, and in essence, he said that because of you know, the ability for both sides to sort of see attacks coming through drones, you know, other technology, it was impossible for either to launch a successful assault with vehicles, tanks, armoured personnel carriers, a mechanised assault. And in essence, Ukraine needed more advanced weaponry if it was going to make sort of gains. Very quickly, President Zelensky rejected that and said the war wasn't stalemated. I mean, what do you make of that exchange? Why is describing it as a stalemate contentious?
1: Okay, look, in chess, a stalemate ends the game, right? Stalemate means neither party can move forward. There's no way out of this. It's a draw. So I can completely understand why Zadevsky does not want to call it a draw. What we do have is, we certainly have a period where neither can move forward, but they're both looking for ways to do it. What it is is nutritional contest. Until and unless one or the other party can, de- can break through the other's defenses, what they're trying to do is not so much attain battlefield gains, as wear the other down, and each of them trying to convince the other that they have more staying power, and that's a recipe for a long war unless one or the other party is, is willing to back down. But it's not a draw.
0: And Olya, tell me if this is wrong, but what a lot of military analysts tend to say is that if it is settling into this war of attrition, and we'll come in a moment to US politics, European politics, and the debates around aid to Ukraine. But if it is settling into a war of attrition, then usually the side that can throw in more soldiers, throw in more weapons, ammunition, presumably that's Russia, given its population size, the fact that much of its economy is on a war footing, that over time, In a war of attrition, the advantage would swing to that side, to Russia.
1: So Russia is making the case to its own people and to Ukraine and to the world that it has more staying power than Ukraine because it has more people, because it has more indigenous military industrial capacity, and because Ukraine is dependent on partners who make up for the military industrial capacity. I'll come to the people in a minute. But Russia also, it's had to get weaponry from North Korea and Iran. It can't quite do it all alone. And Moscow has shifted itself to a war economy. And don't get me wrong, this war economy certainly benefits a number of people in Russia, including some communities, uh, some towns that have really suffered from the death of defense industry, and now they have these plants, they're operating their jobs, and that's great for them. There are other towns that economically benefit from having sent a lot of men to war. And again, you're talking about very poor places. There are also probably some very wealthy people who are benefiting from this war, right? So, but the question of how sustainable this is for the Russian economy is it's one that's really tough to parse. You'll certainly hear people say that they can do this forever, and you'll hear people raise questions about rising inflation. I find it really difficult to parse in part because the numbers aren't real, right? You can't trust Russian economic statistics. We know that as long as they keep being able to sell oil and gas, some money's coming into Russia's coffers. But, you know, I can't offer you a much more sophisticated analysis than that when we do come to personnel russia is drawing its men and as i think we've discussed before it's almost entirely men from poorer parts of the country so this war has not affected in that sense elites at all and you know except for ones who've made a big deal of signing up it's affected the urban middle class in places like moscow and st petersburg but also you know, in the and so forth, um, a lot less. it affects the middle class with the rising prices and for the poor, it offers financial options that didn't exist before. now is that the best financial option? I don't know, and you've seen unrest in parts of Russia. you've seen frustration in parts of Russia. so it's also a tough one to judge how long can it keep drawing men from these poorer communities? Ukraine has been drawing, again, mostly men, though, you know, we, we heard a lot about the women fighting for Ukraine in the early days of the full scale war. We've heard less about them now. I think there are you know it's simply because there weren't and continue not to be that many of them, but there are women fighting and there will continue to be women fighting for Ukraine. But Ukraine draws them from its entire population. The issue for Ukraine is the folks who volunteered to fight who were gonna fight under any circumstances they're either fighting or they were wounded or killed. So trying to find more people has been more difficult. And Ukraine's mobilization system, it's still a very Soviet system, very non-transparent. Families have trouble finding out what happened to their soldier if uh, communication drops off, rotation schedules aren't clear. So one of the questions is, is, will more people show up to fight? Will more people respond to their mobilization notices? If they fix that system. The other thing Ukraine could do is mobilize younger people. It has drawn on older people for the mobilization intentionally.
0: That's mostly because it's tried to tap people that were trained.
1: Yeah, I think experience. Yes. I mean, mobilization in principle, the whole idea is that you have a prior service record, you have prior experience and prior training, so they'll pull you in. But they've got to train everybody. So at some point, and honestly, if you served in the Soviet army in the 1980s, I'm not sure how useful you are right now, just on that basis, right? So they could go younger. I think they've been worried about doing that for political reasons. And so a Ukrainian uh, I was speaking with who's been following these issues professionally, also pointed out to me that, you know, younger soldiers have better knees, right? They'll run further faster. You need more vehicles if your army is older. I don't know to what extent that actually affects things. There's no evidence they're short of vehicles.
0: Also, they are bigger officer corps, right? I mean, you can't just throw people who are just trained. I mean, you still need an officer corps to command them.
1: Absolutely. You need the whole set. And look, Ukraine has been able to generate enough people Part of the issue is that if they can't fix mobilization, they have multiple problems, right? One of them is they don't have enough people. And the other is that you have a lot of domestic frustration and anger with people accusing other people of of not doing their share. And I think that can get really ugly.
0: I want to ask one more in a moment about Russian politics, but just staying with Ukraine, despite the challenges of mobilization that you talked about this sobering picture that you present all reports suggest that ukrainians are still determined to fight right when the country's independence is at stake their identity and certainly when you hear ukrainians ukrainian leaders in the media that we heard president zelensky up top the message that they will continue to fight is clear even as the war grinds on even as russian missiles hit ukrainian cities
1: that is definitely what we're seeing from public opinion polling or from surveys of the population. I think the question is, does that desire for your country to keep fighting at what point um, does it translate into willingness for you to send your brother or your husband, yourself to fight? And if Ukrainians are willing to fight, they just want a system that is more transparent, more rational, That trains people adequately, etc. Then they'll be okay. I also think it's important to understand public opinion shifts and people lie to pollsters. So, you know, we do see changes in public opinion, not so much in support for the war effort, but in attitudes towards the government. I mean, that's normal and to be expected. Ukrainians understand that. think for the most part most of them understand the difficulties of attaining a military victory against Russia that would get them back all of their legal territory but they also understand I think that for now there are no other options than to keep fighting or surrender.
0: And if you look back what just over six months ago, just over half a year ago, what you had the leader of the sort of Wagner mercenaries, Yevgeny Evgeny Prigozhin, marching on Moscow. You know, suddenly, the Kremlin's, President Putin's grip looked shakier than people had assumed. And yet, fast forward to today, and as you say, it's difficult to predict what's going to happen when the whole economy is geared towards you know, producing weapons or the war effort when you know, many Russians are dying on front lines. But for now, President Putin, he seems more confident at home than maybe he did some months ago.
1: So I think it's important to make the distinction between how solid Putin is in power and how solid he feels. And the same goes for the people around him. Russia's gearing up for presidential elections, March 15th to 17th. Historically, they worry a lot more about these than Westerners or even Russians who watch Russia would think they ought to. You've got a population that has been, you know, battered by arrests of the opposition. Yeah, you have these bits and pieces of unrest. I think the Russian government tends to worry about mass protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg more than it tends to worry about all of the rest of it. I mean, the whole Prigozhin thing was treated more as a case of personal disloyalty, right, than an actual threat to the state. But it was an actual threat to the state. It is amazing that an armed force was able to get so close to Moscow, was able to shoot down Russian aircraft. And yes, they killed the leadership of it. Somebody killed the leadership of it, right? The plane crashed. But that doesn't answer the question of how was this possible in the first place? And if it was possible once, is it possible again? So people will tell you Russia is brittle, you know, strong but brittle Um, and It's conventional wisdom, but I think it's right. Putin is absolutely in charge. Could something break that? Yes. Would it be very difficult for it to do so? Also, yes.
0: And, Olya, you mentioned the plane crash. I mean, just so people know, I'm sure most people are aware, but when you talked about the leader of the Wagner Rebellion, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who later died in a plane crash, which everyone assumes the Kremlin was behind. But just to clarify on the broader point, you think Putin feels more... Secure or less secure than in reality he actually is?
1: So I think he feels more secure from the standpoint of Prigozhin-type mutinies. And I think he continues to worry about Navalny-type protests and opposition.
0: This is famous opposition leader Alexei Navalny.
1: Who is in prison and keeps getting moved from prison facility to prison facility. So, you know, the way I often phrase this, and this is very simplistic, is that the Kremlin worries about civil society unrest. It worries about middle-aged ladies and gentlemen standing on city squares holding blank pieces of paper. Um, For some reason, they don't worry about men with guns. And I suppose that should be heartening for everybody who thinks that civil society is the answer to all problems. But historically, the civil society unrest and opposition has not been very effective in Russia, whereas the men with guns end up killing people.
0: Let's move then to the US. And as we heard in the intro, there's this aid package stuck in Congress. It's just over 60 billion of aid to Ukraine. The Biden administration lumped it up with aid to Israel, funds for border security in the hope that it would get past this small but vocal caucus of Republican legislators. Now, the administration does have other ways to get aid through, but it's going to be less. It's going to be more difficult. So there's a lot riding on this package for Kiev.
1: Sure. And also just the signal it sends, right? That The U.S. government cannot get its act together to get through a bill that will pay for contracts to put more weapons into Ukrainian hands. And that's kind of bad, right? If they have to get more creative about how to support Ukraine because the U.S. Congress, parts of the U.S. Congress are blocking it.
0: Well, especially because those parts of the U.S. Congress largely reflect, you know, again, as we heard up top, the views of Donald Trump, who is by far the most powerful figure in the Republican Party and has been quite critical of the aid sent to Ukraine.
1: Yes, especially since these are the parts that are trying to please Canada Trump. I don't know if it's going to get through. I remember just a few months ago, where the administration was super confident that it was going to get several packages of aid through, right? And more recently, you know, I'm told that they're still confident, but um, also questioning whether their confidence is displaced. I mean, it would be bad for Ukraine. I do think what happened is that an effort to use Ukraine aid as part of kind of your usual horse trading went awry because people misjudged one another and their own capacity to get what they wanted. That's always a risk when you get into into these negotiations. They thought they were doing normal U.S. congressional executive branch horse trading, and it turned out that they were holding things hostage that are actually fairly important, and now they can't back down. If that really is something that is going to be a hallmark of the American political system going forward, I have worries beyond Ukraine.
0: I mean, this must be sort of extraordinary to watch from Kiev, given the degree of support that Ukraine enjoyed at the beginning, the way that the Biden administration, Biden himself, was able to reinvigorate NATO. This must be just sort of an extraordinary turnabout seen from Ukraine.
1: It's interesting. It depends on which Ukrainians you talk to, kind of like it depends on which Americans you talk to. Some people are very sanguine. They think it'll sort itself out. It has to, right? And other people less so, but then it's not clear what they think needs to happen. The Ukrainians have put a lot of their eggs in the American basket, and it ought to be very unnerving, But I would say the other thing that happens in Kyiv is that the focus tends to be on Kyiv, that the politics they worry about is their own politics. So they're going to pay more attention to whether or not there's going to be another cabinet shakeup, whether they're going to swap out the chief of the general staff. And of course, the conspiracy theories start running rampant as well. But the Ukrainians, they do tend to focus on Ukraine.
0: So in Europe, in Brussels a few weeks ago, European leaders voted on opening accession talks for the EU with Ukraine, a big signal of confidence. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban wasn't clear he was going to agree. In the end, he left the room, avoided the vote, and that way the bloc could get consensus, the unanimous decision which they needed. But there's another vote next week on the 1st of February, I think, on an aid package, £50 economic aid. Do you have a sense of how that will go?
1: Well, I think the big challenge for the EU is that Hungary is not going to change its position fundamentally until and unless it changes its government fundamentally. And, you know, you'll hear people argue that they're basically just trying to extract everything they can from the EU, the Hungarians, and you'll hear people that argue that Hungary just has a different threat perception. Our own interviews in Budapest suggest that both could be true. But what that creates is a situation where the EU is always going to have to be prepared to somehow buy off or create other incentives for the Hungarians, the Slovakias, and whoever else elects a government that isn't fully in line with the EU way forward. And, you know, this is kind of the problem with how the EU makes decisions is you need everyone to agree. So they have to figure out what they're going to offer the Hungarians to get this aid package through. Uh, can they do it? Probably. But they've set themselves up for continuing to have to do that. And so in Europe,
0: and Olya, tell me what you think of this, but in Europe, maybe also among the US's Asian allies, there's a lot of understandable trepidation about what the potential return of Donald Trump might mean. And first, we should say that obviously there's a long way to go between now and November By no means is it certain that he'll be the next president, but there is a chance that he returns and a lot of worry in Europe about what another Trump presidency might mean for European security, for the war in Ukraine. But for all the worries that European leaders express, they don't seem to be doing much to prepare. They haven't really, what, ramped up the ammunition supply lines in the way they could have done. They haven't ramped up the supply lines for other weapons. There seems to be sort of a lot of fretting, but maybe not a lot of action is that too harsh
1: so europe moves slowly right and some of it is about having to get all of these countries on board for any kind of decision uh some of it is bureaucracy and the systems that exist i mean i have to say when i realized that the problem with production wasn't capacity it was the absence of long-term contracts I spent a good bit of time just blinking in confusion. Like, I'm sorry, why can't you sign a long-term contract?
0: And by long-term contracts, you mean for arms and especially for ammunition?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think there's just this huge lag. And they are going to have to get over it, right? Or they're lost. And, I, you know, I, I don't talk to anybody in Europe who doesn't understand the repercussions of former years of Donald Trump. I talked to very few people in Europe who downplay the danger of a Russian victory in Ukraine, quite the opposite. But then you kind of ask about long term contracts and they're like, yeah, you're right, which isn't very satisfying. You are seeing some movement. Look, um, Europeans the Germans, for example, are willing to do things Americans aren't, such as actually begin uh, defense production jointly with the Ukrainians in Ukraine. So you have to give them credit, where they can move, they're moving. But there are a lot of systems that just seem to move slowly.
0: So there's a sort of scenario where the US bill and US support goes through the 61 billion, I think, that, uh, of aid to Ukraine goes through, the European money goes through. Certainly, in that scenario, it's very hard to see Russia taking more Ukrainian territory. Whether Ukraine can take back the territory that Russia now holds or parts of it is still unclear. You know, Russian defences, as we've seen with the counteroffensive over last summer, very, very dug in. If that doesn't happen, is there a muddling through type scenario where the big aid bill from the US doesn't go through, but Biden can still get some money to Ukraine? The Europeans step up a bit and that still keeps front lines where they are.
1: So the combination of Ukraine's mobilization problems and its continued gaps in weaponry together push for it to go on the defensive. It needs less weaponry if it's on the defensive. It has time to train up more people. It needs that break, which I think is another reason talk of a stalemate isn't quite right. Ukraine needs some time. You cannot keep pushing with the resources you've got. You need to just hold the line you need to make sure your defenses are solid, and then you can f- figure out where you are and where you might be able to break through and what would make the most strategic sense um and the advantage of that is it is less ammunition intensive, so you could get through with the stuff that's still in the pipeline and There's a lot in the pipeline if you kind of look at the data that's available on what's been promised to Ukraine. You know, you'll know, you see like eight of X system. I mean, this is looking at the U.S., for instance, uh, U.S. Uh, aid committed. Okay, so two of them have been sent to Ukraine and six of them, um, they're committed in the sense that there's a contract with a U.S. defense firm to build them and they'll show up in six months or 12 months or 18 months or however long it takes to build them. So there's a good bit of time and then you can kind of see what happens. Maybe you could get more money and maybe the Europeans can pull it off. So I think that's kind of the scenario for if the money continues to be a problem.
0: And that muddling through scenario, how does that play out in Ukraine? And what does it mean for Ukrainian politics, particularly after you know, some of the disappointments in the counteroffensive, in some ways, the fact that Ukrainian leaders haven't prepared people for a long and grinding war?
1: I mean, we do have, there are issues with Ukrainian domestic politics Uh, On the Zelensky government's fears of losing power, you know, a lot of the spat between him and Zaluzhny is about concerns that Zaluzhny does very well in public opinion polls. Uh, He's very popular, people like him. But Ukraine also muddles through. The important thing is what goes on on the front lines. Now I think another issue is if some of the aid doesn't come through and Ukraine starts having trouble paying salaries. That's tough. Ukraine actually had some economic growth over the last year, but all of that is dependent on foreign aid. So I think it's important to keep in mind just how important the economic support is.
0: Could we talk about prospects for a ceasefire or something negotiated? So in December, the New York Times reported that the Kremlin was maybe more open to peace talks, in particular, to a sort of land-for-peace deal more open to compromise, at least, than people thought. The general assumption, I think, was that for the Kremlin, the war wasn't primarily about the Ukrainian land that it controlled or that it claims to have annexed. So that's basically four regions, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia, although it doesn't actually control all of those. But it wasn't, for the Kremlin, primarily about land. It's more about having a pliant, maybe even a demilitarized Ukraine, a more pliant government in Kiev it's about Ukraine's surrender, in essence, to Moscow's will. So even if there was some sort of ceasefire, Russia would use that then to prepare to take more of Ukraine. Plus, the argument goes, the Kremlin might then be emboldened to take parts of other countries in its neighborhood. But the former Russian officials close to the Kremlin that the New York Times story cited suggested that actually Putin would potentially settle for some form of Armistice, And that might leave what's left of Ukraine, the 80% or so that Russia doesn't control, as a sovereign, independent state able to chart its own future, make its own decisions about foreign affairs, whether it joins the European Union, for example, or NATO, notwithstanding all the difficulties of doing so. Now, obviously, no one wants a uh, precedent of Moscow gaining land by conquest, and Ukrainians themselves would have to accept such a deal. But leaving those aside, what do you make of the New York Times story's assessment of the Kremlin's calculations?
1: So the Russian line has been that they're open to negotiations all along, except that there's a second clause to that, right? They're open to negotiations under the new conditions, and the new conditions mean that everybody has to accept that they are claiming a big chunk of Ukrainian territory. And I think we also make a mistake if we think the territory is all they want because the demilitarization, the denazification, I think we now mostly translate as um, eliminating the notion of the Ukrainian nation, right? Ukrainian language, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian history, to say nothing of the uh, Ukrainian government as it is. So those things are still what Russia comes in with to any talks. But the Russians say they're willing to negotiate. And then, of course, if you dig a little deeper, you then come to the well. The Russian position is we're willing to talk as long as what we're talking about is your unconditional surrender. Um, then the counter to that is, well, everybody goes into a negotiation with maximalist positions. The point of the negotiation is to shake out something that's acceptable for everybody. The problem is that it, The Russians, they're coming in with conditions, right? We'll talk if you accept these things that we demand, which aren't even realities on the ground because they don't control all of the territory they claim. Now, what was interesting over the last couple of months is that uh, December article in the New York Times was that it suggested the Russians had more give in their negotiating position than most of us had previously heard What I am starting to conclude is that different people in the Kremlin orbit will tell you different things about negotiations at different times. And that's part of their negotiating strategy. I still think that it's always worth exploring any opening for negotiations. That doesn't mean that you send the Ukrainians to sit down and negotiate, right? And indeed, the Russians aren't actually asking to negotiate with Ukraine, Uh, What the New York Times story suggested and and what other reports say is they want to negotiate with the Americans, and that presents certain problems. In some ways, it's easier for the Russians to talk to the Americans, not necessarily to make deals, but to explore possibilities. Can the Americans negotiate on behalf of the Ukrainians? No. Can they send messages back and forth? Sure. Uh, So I think it's always worth kind of testing these waters but, you know, the other thing we've seen is the Russians reject American efforts to get arms control and strategic stability talks back on. Um, they say they won't talk to the Americans about anything unless the Americans are open to solving Ukraine uh, and with European security. So, it, you know, it's, it's not as simple as the, the Russians want to talk and the Americans are blocking it. I also would say that any talks that you and I know about are probably talks that are doomed to failure because they are going to get torn to bits just as soon as everyone knows that there's a conversation going on, um, particularly if it's between the U.S. and Russia with all the fears that decisions might be made uh, for other countries without their presence, it becomes almost impossible to have that conversation. So I think if there are any sorts of talks, they would have to be very, very quiet.
0: And obviously, we should approach any attempt to pass out the Kremlin's calculations with a lot of humility, very hard to read. That said, you could maybe see that Putin might want to dial things down. I mean, His relations with the non-Western world are largely intact, but he still cuts a sort of diminished figure globally compared with what he did a couple of years ago, despite clearly loathing the west as a whole maybe he could see some benefit to you know calming things down at least for a bit maybe even looking for some sanctions relief on the other hand and you know maybe more persuasively there's quite a strong incentive for him to wait given that american support for ukraine you know looks in some way shaky given what we know about european politics there's quite a strong incentive for him to wait and see whether Western politics this year are going to work in his favor.
1: Right. On the other hand, he has his own election coming up. And Trump did not prove to be that big a boon to Moscow the four years he was in power previously. It's really hard to judge, right? Look, I strongly suspect that in the Kremlin, too, there are debates. There is one person who makes all the decisions in the end. But there are different viewpoints. And... Until that one person finds the decisive way forward, they're going to keep debating. And when they communicate with Westerners, they're going to transmit their own view of things.
0: Olya, thanks very much for coming on again.
1: Always happy to join you.
0: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ukraine on our website, crisisgroup.org. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and of course, as ever... Thanks to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcasts at crisisgroup.org or you can write to me directly at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns. If you like the show, please do say something nice about us, tell your friends and colleagues or leave us a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And I very much hope